39% of the planet is what we call arable land. And that means we can sequester about a ton a year into each acre. And we can keep doing it year after year after year. So with just a little bit of focus and a little bit of alignment of incentives, by 2030, we're supposed to get 14 billion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. That's pretty damn significant, right? We just have to get those incentives aligned to help the farmer know that they're not taking this risk alone, right? They, that's the issue. They need to know they're not in it alone. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we talk to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building a successful business that also helps us build a better world. When we talk about building a better world, no matter what form that ultimately takes, there's one thing that's absolutely going to be true about it, and that is that we are still going to need to be supported by fundamentally strong agriculture. Everything changes, but the need to eat remains the same. And as the last few years have made clear to us, exposing the fragility of our supply chains, it's vital that our agriculture can also be local. Paradoxically, as the world grows ever wider and more interconnected, the importance of small farmers is actually increasing. And still, it's a very challenging time for the American farmer. Profit margins on crops have shrunk, climate change, drought, and extreme weather events are threatening yields and driving up costs. Competition with monocultural factory farms has become increasingly difficult, even as such industrial-scale farming practices deplete soil health and consume dwindling water supplies. But a beautiful thing about agriculture is that it also contains within itself many of the solutions to its own challenges. As we've heard from several previous guests, sustainable agriculture doesn't just improve soil health and help secure a more resilient food system. It also has the potential to act as a major means of reducing and offsetting carbon emissions worldwide. Embracing sustainable practices, however, can be daunting for many small farmers. When the margins are so thin, it can seem risky to try anything new. With many traditional means of support having been withdrawn or no longer being sufficient, American farmers need an ally in their corner to help them unlock agriculture's potential to do well while doing good. Fortunately for us all, they've got a great ally in our guest this week. Ron Hovsepian is the CEO of Indigo Ag, a company harnessing the power of science and technology to deliver farmer solutions that make the land more abundant and more sustainable, both environmentally and financially. Ron's had a fascinating career. He spent three decades out in front of nearly every major trend in technology, from managing supply chain at IBM in the 80s to improving cloud and SaaS technology interlinks. His vision of aligning data and biotech with agriculture to help farmers profit from making good choices is amazing and inspiring, and we were really excited to get him on the show. So let's jump into the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ron. We're super excited to have you here. Let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Great. Um, thank you first for having me here. I greatly appreciate it. I was born and raised in Boston, so you'll hear a little Boston accent as we go along. As part of the journey, I might roll a few R's and add an A here and there. <laughs> so I was born actually in the city, and then my parents moved out uh, west of the city in my youth and ended up uh, spending uh, most of my career here in Boston um, as part of my journey. When you were growing up, what kind of things were you interested in? What was keeping you busy as a kid? I obviously uh, really enjoyed school, but uh, also playing some sports. So that combination of things uh, is always uh, always important in, in our life to have uh, have balance. It was the way I was raised. And then uh, my grandfather was the immigrant from Armenia. I'm a descendant of being Armenian. And that, uh, that came with very large work ethics. So uh, he would uh, 
often wake my brother and I up bright and early in the morning and uh, make sure we were out chopping wood. So uh, he has no rest with him. Any, any indication growing up? Like, what did, you, what did you think you wanted to do in life? I really didn't have any pre-described things. Uh, when I did go to university, it, it began to wake up in my mind that I really was enjoying tech. And I started to really get enamored with tech and where it was going. And uh, that's what drew me down that particular track when I was graduating. And you have had an incredible career at some of the best places in the technology industry. And really at the forefront, I would say, of the industry, right? Like you seem to be just ahead of the curve every single time. And so talk us through kind of your career trajectory. Start out at IBM. Sure. Tech was, tech was really where I wanted to go. IBM at that time was the preeminent company in the industry. And I uh, was lucky enough to, uh, to get hired there. Part of my journey inside of there, though, was that they really did a great job teaching us about customers and products, how to build products, how to build relationships. That was really important. And then probably one of the more interesting jobs was towards the end when I became the general manager worldwide of all the supply chain products. That was a great lesson on how do you bring a supply chain together digitally as well as physically. And that was really quite an eye-opener, and it's coming back full circle in this particular role. From there, I then went into a venture fund, which was great because I went from a big machine like IBM that could produce cash and never really thought much about cash because they took care of that to, okay, now I'm sitting there with four or five startups going, okay, how do we make payroll, right? And how do we, how do we get customers? And so you go from a multi-billion dollar company right down, okay, you have no revenue, you got to get a build revenue. So it's really quite a, an eye-opening uh, education and learning experience for me. And then from there, I was really studying open source. And then open source got me very enthusiastic about that, where open source could go, what it could be. And I left and I joined a company called Novell, where we went into the open source arena there by acquiring a company uh, out of Europe called SUSE Linux. And that took us into the Linux world back in the 2005-ish timeframe. And that, to me, was really an exciting area, really getting out ahead of that, understanding how the whole industry would go through that massive transformation from proprietary operating systems, proprietary chips to much more open sets of architectures and watching it shift the cost away from the hardware in the lower bottom half of the stack all the way over to the real where the real money is in the applications, the stuff we use, right, as users. So that was a great part of my journey. Now, from there, I, I went and uh, went to the cloud because I want to really learn cloud inside out. So that took me to Interlinks. That was a fantastic experience as well. And then from there, honestly, I was hitting a point in my life where um, at this stage in life, I was looking at, okay, what do I do next in life? And I said, you probably got one good turn of the crank left in your brain. So what do you want to do? And I might have said before I start sipping applesauce. And, um, <laughs> and uh, the truth of it was, I really want to do something either in education or in sustainability in the, in the biotech space. And that led me into uh, joining Flagship Pioneering, which uh, then led me uh, to become on the board of Indigo. And when I had an opportunity to step in here and help and do something special for the planet, I just dove at the opportunity. I mean, just to summarize for folks, that, because you literally were at the, the right place for every transformative period I can think of in technology, right? Like you were at IBM during its heyday as it built the modern computing industry. Then you were at Internet Capital Group doing venture capital as the internet economy took off. Then you were at Linux doing open source. Then you're doing cloud work. You know, you covered SaaS. You covered all the major industry milestones 
and led us through them. I'm curious, how do you think you stayed ahead of the curve? Because <laughs> you really have. Yeah, no, it's uh, um, uh, first of all, good luck and a little good fortune. And listening to the right people, probably one of the few gifts that I was given given along my life journey was the ability to s- recognize the patterns that were unfolding and those emerging patterns. And that comes as a really good thing and a really dangerous thing, because as you may know, some of these things take a long time to develop, right? They don't all happen overnight, right? And if you need a good laugh, go back and read one of the IBM annual reports in the late 80s, where they were touting this thing called speech recognition, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but I still maybe get a little frustrated with uh, Siri and a few others along the way. It's not quite there yet. We got a hell of a lot better, right? So that pattern recognition and then timing when the market's really going to be ready for it is probably the the little extra gift that someone gave me along the way. So that's how you stay ahead. Is there anything that you can take away from that pattern recognition that you've been able to capture over the last over your career for others? Like, what, what did you think you've learned? What are the through lines that you can pinpoint? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Probably the most important thing is is when you see the patterns, understanding and translating that pattern, right, and the timing of the market is one of the keys. So I joke all the time about the hype cycle. That hype cycle, you know, it does a great job of telling us, oh, AI is going to be the best thing in the world, and it's going to be AI and ML, and it's this and that and all these other wonderful things. Connor, do you know what year AI and ML was actually first kind of came on the scenes? Like a lot of people don't have a feel for that, but I don't know if you've studied it a lot, obviously. I just finished listening to a four-part podcast um, on the history of NVIDIA. So they covered a, a, a decent amount of, of that. And it's funny because one of the comparison points they draw frequently is IBM. What NVIDIA does, how they do with the various places that their technology and services and you know the way they deployed an ecosystem looks a lot like IBM when IBM was building the computing economy. It's really true. And those models, if you really study them, generation from mainframe to mini computers to PCs to the internet to what we're doing today, they haven't really changed. Every one of them has an operating system. Every one of them has a security layer, right? And that journey of what like NVIDIA is doing is rebuilding it. Now we're building it with an AI layer, though. That's what's new. That's what's exciting. And you look at the roots and you go back, though, to your question, those roots get identified 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Like AI and ML were identified, believe it or not, back in the 50s and 60s. The problem is timing. And the the lessons that I learned, and I can now share some of my mistakes, where we tried to do all these really great things at once. We tried to change the technology in in a particular product and technology we brought to the retail market. And we changed the operating system and we changed the application. What the hell was I thinking? Changing three things at Everything once, at once, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right? What, what was I thinking? Thought I was a good, smart young lad, right? But you, t- you take on too much. Yeah. And in this market, the trick is to tie together how customers can consume it with those patterns and when the technology is going to be ready. That's the key lesson. Once you figure out that algorithm, boy, it gets a lot clearer what you need to do. And just keep listening to those customers, man. They're really smart. They may not say it the way you want to hear it, so you got to translate it. But boy, they can tell you an awful lot. Keep listening. So talk to us about your current iteration. Give us the origin story of Indigo. Sure. Indigo as a company really was founded and really began with focusing itself on harnessing nature 
to help farmers sustainably feed the planet. And that that Indigo positioned itself as an agricultural, sustainable agricultural company that really was focused on powering ourselves by science and tech and really on the farmers and the agribusinesses and the rest of the value chain to help them figure out how do we optimize the yields that we need to get from the fields to feed people combined with the profitability for the farmer, while at the same time, how do we help the soil continue to grow and get better, right? And we know how important the land is to the farmers. It's not just a wonderful source of bounty that we have. It's the legacy that's handed down from their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers. And when you talk to these farmers, Connor, when they tell you, hey, I have 40 or 50 seasons in me. I get paid once a season, Ron, once a year. And when you talk to them, yeah, I got 20 left. I got 18 left. It's really fascinating to see how they care and think about the soil and what's happening on those farms. So for us to respect that legacy and harnessing the science that we have today, we've been able to really build a set of flexible, high-value revenue streams that help people grow sustainable crops and generate carbon removal and carbon credits that help the future generations of farmers that still are to come. Walk us through the solutions that you guys offer today to farmers, to agribusiness, to corporations. How do do you look at your products and services? We start out with the farmer who wants to do sustainable farming practices and they want to make more money. Farmers are really clear that they just want to make, make more money, more profit on their farm. So first thing we do is we help them with inputs. By delivering biologics, we can deliver more yield to the farmer and the farmer can get, you know, anywhere from four to seven, eight more bushels by using our microbials. They can also save money and because they're natural occurring, they wear less on the on the land, right? That's what we do with our biological business. Then in addition to that, what we've done is we've really focused ourselves on How do we help the planet remove carbon, right? And what can we do around that overall carbon journey? And here, what we've done is we've developed a platform that allows us to connect the information and the practice changes that the farmers are doing. And we've been able to tie that all the way through measuring carbon and measuring the removal of that carbon at the very highest standards in the world. And we're able to do that so that they can monetize it as a farmer, either through a scope three payment or a sustainable crop payment. Because farmers need to continue to grow enough food to feed all of us while making the planet more sustainable. And then we tie it all together in a digital network uh, for them so they can put the pieces together in our market plus capabilities. So three products, biologics, carbon removal capabilities around sustainable crops, and then a digital network, a capability that brings it all together to tie the whole value chain from farm to this consumer packaged good manufacturer or the feedlot or wherever it ends up going to. And I think what's important to tease out here is within this is the business case for sustainability at the agricultural level, at the farmer level, right? You talk about cutting costs, you talk about new revenue streams, monetization opportunities, like you're building uh, the business case, along with your partners in the field, the farmers, to pursue a sustainable path forward. Correct. And and part of that is you got to show up with that economic equation, Connor, as you're pointing out. They're very clear about that, right? They really are. Um, farmers are really unique that way. And uh, so t- to your to your question underneath it is, 
how do we put all those pieces together? And if you just take a simple farm, corn and soy rotation, as they call it, thousand acres, by taking on these regenerative practice changes, and that's really the story, taking on these practice changes of regen, the farmer can move from conventional farming to these new practices. And in a five-year period on a thousand acres, they can pick up on a net present value basis, about $100,000 by taking on these changes and using some of the tools that I just highlighted around biologics that we have, around what we do from carbon removal and monetization, and digitally tying those pieces together. That's what's exciting. I've had a couple great interviews with some folks that are regenerative agriculture folks, ranchers, et cetera. And one early on, a rancher out in Montana had a really interesting point when I asked him what he thinks that the challenges are to growing the regenerative sector within agriculture. And he said, what's interesting, you mentioned, you know, the farmer's got 40 or 50 uh, seasons behind him that he's, he's done this, but he only gets paid once a season, right? And many of these farms are, are family farms that have passed generation to generation. And he said, you know, you don't want to be the young farmer with that one shot that year and mess it up because you could be messing up the family legacy forever. And so I'm wondering, it's almost like these, that what you guys provide in some way, shape, or form also provides a risk mitigation benefit to, to these farmers to know and understand better how to do it, how to do it right, how to minimize risk. It, it really does. And it touches on what's happening to the soil, right? So the soil is actually the tooling that they have. And that actually gets measured when they take a loan out. They come out and they look at the soil quality. There's an index there that they look at. So this is a key part of their financial equation that they operate from. So inside of there, those farmers know that that's a big piece of what's going on for them and they need to, and they do care for the soil. But on the flip side, half the farms in the U.S. are owner-operated and the other half are not. So how do we build a model that lets the farmers farm the right way regeneratively and still make money in this hybrid, you know, half-owned, half-unowned by those farmers because these are five to 10 year journeys to become a regenerative farmer. That's the, the trick that we we're all working towards solving. And the way we're solving it is trying to tie all those pieces together with the farmer, with the landowner to make sure that the landowner and the farmer agree to their terms without us in the room. And because that's, you don't cross that line. I've learned as my farmer's friends shared with me, but also understand that this thing's going to happen in a pilot an expansion and a rollout. They're not going to do everything all at once and they're not going to give you all their farm all at once. I got a farmer in Iowa, Ben, and his family, and he's got 18,000 acres he farms. And okay, Ron, here's 2,000 acres. Next year of the program, he gave us 8,000 acres, right? We got to earn our keep every year, right? And that's fair. You talk about Ben and the, the farmer Ben. I'm curious what the experience was like moving from a world with a technology and venture capital oriented person <laughs> into working with America's heartland and farmers and agriculture, a very different persona. What was that shift like? It was uh, really exciting and really interesting. And, um, you know, if I had to summarize it, Connor, much like a lot of CEOs in the Fortune 500, these folks are very direct communicators. They're very clear about their desire to drive their bottom line from their operations. And they truly understand their business model and operations as well as any CEO Fortune 1000 that I've ever met. 
And candidly, they, dot, 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 they might even be a little better at it because they're sitting on the tractor, right? They know exactly what's going on. And when you sit with them all day, they understand what's going on. They start their morning with their whole crew and they know exactly what they're doing, right? And the work's divided up. If it's raining, they do this. If it's if something else is happening, they do that. And they're so facile and fast at adjusting to what's going on. You know, I was down in Mississippi with a farmer, Jeremy, and okay, Ron, it's not going to rain today. Three o'clock, we're sitting in his shed, listening to the rain come pouring down <laughs> on top of it, right? So he had to adjust. And the yeah. speed at which they adjust is just incredible. They sense and respond better than any large company I've ever been associated with. That's amazing. And you show up in the in the field with Jeremy as a technologist by, yep. you know. By training, uh, yep. Yeah. For sure, for sure. I'm, I'm curious how you help convey the importance of leveraging science and technology to drive sustainability and profit in the entire industry. Like, how do you communicate that industry-wide and or you know, individually one-on-one with folks? Yeah, it, it's probably the most interesting task. So first, they're very strong on science to begin with, just to be clear. They understand their soil and they know what their soil can and can't get done. So you always go into that cautiously and with data. They want to see facts, but what's different is they want to see facts around them. Okay, that's great. Your science does this, but show me something in my in my county that's doing that, right? And then two, when it comes to the tech part of it, they actually understand tech on their farm extremely well. You start hop into a John Deere tractor or a Case tractor and you're going to you're going to see a pretty technical cockpit in there and a lot of information flowing for the farmer, weather data, et cetera, right? So it's very sophisticated in that regard. Where the gap is that we have to bridge with them is explaining to them, hey, you grow this crop up, we have a chance to help you grow a crop down into the soil. The bigger shoot and root mass that you get from the biologics, the ability to use that shoot and root mass to draw down more carbon into the soil, those are things that we have to explain to them and how we measure it. And then the trick is to start with how much money they can make and then work from there. But it's, it is a journey. It is a journey. But the farmers are really, they're savvy. They jump on it. Ben up in, you know, up in Jessup, Iowa, he, he knew exactly where, where he wanted to test it. And we went and tested it. And then we went to the next step. As you think about the experiences early on that opened your eyes to the impact and potential of what Indigo can do for people, I'm curious if there's any stories that stand out. I think so many of us don't spend enough time actually thinking about and understanding how important this sector is that it literally is, you know feeding the country and many parts of the world that and providing a assortment of commodities and assets that you know we all need to survive what was the experience like of, of doing that kind of discovery and what what do you think back and remember what the impact these folks could have and what what impact you could have on them yeah no it's a wonderful question and what I saw was right when I started, we had a chance to move into COVID. So we saw the pressure on those supply chains when food didn't show up, right? We all live that as, as a country and as a world. And what's important there is we all became more in tune with what was happening out there with the farmers. So for me, what I saw firsthand when I got out there on the farms is I really saw the importance of what do we need to do to lead to more resilient plants, right? And what I saw in our biological part of the world was, wow, when 
I stick my hand in the ground and pull up one of these plants that's using these natural tools, you just see how big the root mass is that's on it. And a root mass is what's going to put more density back into the soil, more organic matter. It's also the length of the root, or we call the shoot and root mass. That's actually capturing more nutrients, and it's what's the tooling to bring more carbon into the ground. And then the other big eye-opening moment for me was, boy, when I look across and we talk about what we could do for carbon removal, it adds a percent of income for the farmer, right? That's huge. But where it really struck a chord with me, what Indigo did exceptionally well, was we designed a global program for the carbon program. So a small farm holder who takes a carbon credit, Connor, let's you know, let's look at our, our, our carbon credits today. They're over, they're at $40 a ton. Well, somebody who has two acres on a farm in a small farm holder who has just two acres in India or the subcontinents around there or Africa, that $100 they could earn in incrementally is gigantic in terms of annual family income. And that's why we set the program up globally. To see the impact that we could have on the soil, the planet, and people, it was very, very moving and very eye-opening to me when I came through through this to your question. Like that combination of pandemic, people not finding you know food on the shelves anymore, and we're spoiled in this country. We really, really are in the U.S. We're very blessed to have the supply chains that we have that other people didn't enjoy. And that was really an eye-opener for me, seeing all these pieces come together. I want to come back to, the, to that topic on the mm-hmm. potential impact, but actually keep going on COVID first because you've been there. I mean, you've been in the industry amidst an incredible challenge, but I assume that's not the only challenge you've seen or you've seen your farmers have to work through. You know, we see more and more headlines every year of extreme weather uh, having impact on the agricultural communities around the country. So I'm curious what, notable challenges you've recognized in kind of the way you you see pattern assessment and opportunity and how you see farmers and the agricultural community adapting and working towards a better future. Yeah. So to your question, we've seen the number of storms in the last 20 years, what we call highly volatile storms, the ones that have these extreme weather experiences, they've more than doubled to over 7,000 storms, right? So it's real what you're describing, Connor, and it's really important. So from an overall perspective on the farm, what we've witnessed with the farmers is extreme drought conditions, right? As you look at different parts, the drought can hit like up in northern piece of Iowa, and then the rest of Iowa can be fine, right? It's really fascinating how variable the weather and all the patterns are that the farmers have to deal with. And what we don't understand as individuals, these farmers literally bet their farm every single crop season, every crop season. And the only net they have is an insurance policy from the government, right? And that doesn't allow them to make money. That allows them to get back to just break even when everything's right. And they're the most hopeful people when they make those plantings. And then they turn into the best risk mitigators I've ever seen in my life. They know every detail. We got to get out here then. I need more water now or I won't get the yield. That was the hardest thing to watch the past couple of years is when the yields were going great two, three years ago. Awesome. But boy, we've had some tough drought conditions this year and some of last year. You go down into Oklahoma, they were losing their crops very early on. 
watching how these farmers handle that is one of the probably the biggest lack of understanding that I personally had as someone from one of the coasts, because they like to remind me that I'm a flyover guy, right? We fly over all those places, <laughs> right? Well, I'm down in there with them now, hitting all those spots. And it's real. These impacts are real, the weather and the, and the damage that it does to the planet and to the f- amount of food we need to generate because we have a growing population to go with it. How are farmers, especially in the West or in Oklahoma, how are they thinking about the water situation in general? What are you hearing? How are we thinking about solutions? How are you guys thinking about supporting them? What's the status there? Yeah, so the farmers think a lot about water because that is the most important after the soil. That'll be the most important uh, part of their journey, along with some sunshine. That'll all tie together. So a couple things that we talk to them about is we have what are called water and nutrient efficient, uh, efficiency-based uh, biologics that can help them fight drought and water stress. I had an Alabama farmer, uh, Larkin, she shared with me uh, with our team, actually, she called him a couple of weeks ago and said, whatever you put on my wheat that last year, it was unbelievable during those high drought, st- high stress moments. And she said, I want all my wheat fields covered with that. That's the kind of things that we can do with our biologics. What we also see from the farmers is they are understanding the need for alternate revenue sources. And that's where what we're doing on the on the sustainable practice change side is so important because that water part of the journey plugs right into the aquifers that feed them and also ties back to what we're putting in the soil, potentially disrupting those aquifers. And as you know, a number of these aquifers are under incredible pressure and are being drained at a much higher rate. That's where we gave birth, like with some of the farmers in the rice area. We're using uh, techniques that have been proven out by other scientists and farmers where we do an alternate day of wetting and drying it. So let's take rice down in Arkansas. What we've done working with companies like AB InBev, Walmart, uh, Nestle, is that with those farmers, we've moved to an alternating wet-dry approach versus flooding the whole field. Well, just with one customer alone, in the past four years of contracts with that customer, we've saved six billion gallons of water instead of flooding the field. That means we can let 36 million people drink water for a whole year. Like that's the kind of impact you can have. And all we did was we adopted a practice, the farmer, we didn't do anything. The farmer adopted the practice and we measured it, but the farmer adopted those practice changes. And all of a sudden they're seeing a much lower water bill, right? As part of their usage. And they are now able to create more value for themselves because they receive a premium for farming that way from those companies. So everybody's winning in those scenarios. And you talk about these the, the premium. It seems like there's an opportunity to continue really leveraging mutually beneficial win-win structures here. And you mentioned, we put a pin in it a, a minute ago, the potential impact that the entire sector and farmers can have. I'm curious, when you were thinking about identifying, I want to do something sustainable in this go around. Did you have a sense for how big the opportunity was for the agricultural community to impact emissions and and carbon capture? Um, I did a little bit. I actually had a better understanding of the problem that we had to solve. I didn't have as much of an appreciation for just how much agriculture is the most immediate scalable solution we have. And I'm telling you, I've looked at all the man-made stuff. We need them all. I look at the ocean stuff. We need all that. But 39% of the planet is what we call arable land. 
And that means we can sequester about a, a ton a year into each acre. And we can keep doing it year after year after year. So with just a little bit of focus and a little bit of alignment of incentives, by 2030, we're supposed to get 14 billion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, we could probably use farming and ranching, that those lands. We can draw down somewhere between four and six billion of those 14 billion. Yep. That's pretty damn significant, right? And there's more that we can do over time as we look at it. We just have to get those incentives aligned, get some catalytic financing there to help the farmer know that they're not taking this risk alone, right? They, that's the issue. They need to know they're not in it alone, right? Because if not, they're not going to risk their farm. What are the pathways towards that, that economic alignment? Um, there's a couple things. One we've learned from farmers is that they really want choice in the way they they monetize. So don't tell them you get one program. That was early lesson, right? Don't tell them one program. But the paths to monetizing it are by taking on regenerative farming and then deciding, okay, I can monetize it through a scope three program or I can monetize it through carbon offsets. Those are the early pieces. In regenerative farming, though, it includes using what do I do to change my uh, and adjust my inputs? What do I do to use less nitrogen? Right? It's a whole bunch of these things coming together. It's not one individual thing. I started with the end when they monetize it. But those regen practices is what the farmer spends part of the winter laying out with their agronomist, their core consultant to the land with them. They lay that plan out, and that's how they make money. That goes into their financial plan and the overall operations of the farm. And what are farmers thinking about this, saying about this? How are they embracing this or adopting it? We've seen some good early adoption on our side. So we've already seen 7 million acres signed up in the U.S. alone for our carbon removal programs. So that's great. But it's just a start. There's 300 million acres of farmland in the U.S. and another 300 million acres plus of, of ranch land, right? So we're just at the very beginning of this journey. And what they're saying right now is because it's a bit of a gold rush, the farmers are kind of like, okay, but which program do I pick so that I don't get locked in and get hurt? So that's causing a little bit of the slowdown with the farmers. And the best thing we can do is help them with the financing and the money to let them know that the money's going to continue to flow, not this week, not this just one season, but over the next 10 or 20 years, right? Because they've been, they've been burned in a couple of areas right along their journey. Yeah. If we can align incentives and provide the right economic structure for 10, 20 years, to your point, we're at 2033, and how many acres are now under, are now operating regeneratively, are now sequestering carbon? It seems like the potential really is astronomical. Oh, it, it's significant. We looked at it saying, hey, look, if we did this right, we could take about a half a teraton of carbon out of the planet. Now, just remember, everyone, I know we all talk about net zero, but we actually need about 20 billion tons to operate the planet. So we don't want to quite go to zero completely. <laughs> we want to make sure we keep feeding it, right? That's a key piece of what we need to get done. But it's very impactful of what the farmland and ranch land can really do. In general, as you take a step back and think about the American agricultural and food system and food security, and frankly, it's something we, we talked a lot about during COVID and I'm curious how you think about the agricultural industry's opportunity to reinforce resiliency to, you know, part of this is, this is all wrapped up in the same conversation, right? Yep, it is. It's all tied together, Connor, as you're highlighting, right? So the one thing about 
agriculture is it is a biological living creature, right? For lack of a better word, right? That living ecosystem is where all the pieces come together. So the industry from an ag input perspective, they're looking at how they innovate. The farmers are looking at how they innovate. The tech people looking at how we help innovate, right? The science, we're trying to bring all those pieces together to complement the agricultural biological system, this living organism, right? What people don't know is one tablespoon of soil has, you know, more than 70 million microbes in it, right? And then you walk a you walk a hundred feet in the other direction, and it's maybe half the same 70 million. And people don't understand the diversity of the soil because it's just living. And then this one little square foot area, that microbe might never make it to the other side of that square foot, right? So it's a very complex system, yet it's very simple. It needs carbon to eat, it needs water to drink. And then ultimately in the end, it then produces what we want from the plant. It needs that soil to nourish itself. That nutrients are all in there. Put those three together and that's where the breakthrough comes. And that's really what we're focused on is how do we bring those three things together And we use language like landscaping, where we bring together the municipalities, where people want to bring together all the farms, and we really try to build around an ecosystem in that particular area. That's really where we see it evolving to. Yeah, that was my next question. What does kind of the growth and future look like for Indigo? For us in the future, from my perspective, for us, what we can get done next is really making sure that we deliver on the greenhouse gas removals. We can help the farmers make more money. And then more importantly, by applying these technologies and making the money, we also can help the farmers leave a better planet behind and feed all the people we have to feed in a growing population. That's the cool part of the math equation that we have to solve here, right? And it's a big one, right? It's a serious challenge that we have in front of us. But people are up for that challenge. The farmers are up for it. The companies are up for it. And we're just now figuring out all the pieces to get aligned to make it work well. Yeah. And I, I want to just call it out one more time because this is something that we hear over and over again as a, a theme in conversations that I have that you can't force sustainable solutions in a vacuum. You can't, no one's operating a nonprofit here at the scale that would be needed to fix everything. And so what we're seeing is the most successful solutions in moving towards a more sustainable future are those that align profit with doing the right thing. You know, the idea of monetizing sustainability, like that is a core opportunity that will help drive change more successfully, faster, longer. And you guys are seeing, you know, right at the heart of it. It's, it's really true. And if you look at, if you look at one practice change, Australia and, and our friends in, down in Argentina, they took on no-tilling, which when you don't turn the soil, it stops the release of the gas, right? Any greenhouse gases. You know, within about 10 years, they had migrated to about 80% of their farms doing no-till. That's incredibly fast. And by the way, they didn't do it because they had a subsidy. They didn't do it for any other reason than what you stated, which is, I can make more money. It's one less pass on my tractor, right? I'm keeping more of the nutrients in the ground that's making my soil richer. You, you mentioned just a second ago some of the community-focused outreach that you've done, engagement that you've done. I know there's a a lot of collaboration and partnership underneath your work for success. And I'm curious how you work with other members of the agricultural community, the agribusiness community, to promote and advance sustainability across the board 
any particular mission line partnerships that you're excited about or that you want to spotlight? Sure. There's there's several that we're very excited about. First, we're excited about working with the policymakers and the people in the scientific community who are really focused on making sure that we really measure and do these things the right way. We believe that's going to be critical to get the farmer paid the most. We're not chasing it for any other reason that we know if the farmer gets that right, they're going to get paid a lot of money. So that's what we want to make sure we get done with that community and work with them. And they want it because they want to make sure we help the planet. So it's a perfectly aligned mission. Then people in between the rest of the value chain, they're all working their way through what their role is as part of it, but everybody's focused on it. I I can tell you the people we've had a chance to work with, Corteva, they've been super helpful in driving the market. The consumer packaged good companies that I referenced, like an AB InBev or Walmart or Nestle, those folks uh, have been unbelievably helpful. And they're the ones who are reaching out to drive these business models to the next level. And then what we did that's a little different, we focused on the local co-op or the local community in that geography because we believe right there is another spot where money, some money needs to flow to keep these local small towns going or else we're going to lose all the, all the smaller farmers or the mid-sized farmers. So we've got to keep the economic structure going that supports these folks. So people like Alandis, people like Growmark. So Alandis is in Iowa. Growmark is over in, um, well, actually, it's in a lot of the Midwest. <laughs> actually, they're pretty pretty broad. They're housed in Illinois, but they reach up and down and over. But those are the kind of places where they have local community groups that are really working, buying inputs on behalf of the farmers, buying grains, aggregating them, putting them in an elevator, and then pushing them upstream. We need to make sure we stay with them. And that's the people that we've really focused on. Little company like an ag partner, right? Bringing these things to Frontier Co-op and others like that, that we did in our wheat program. That's where you're going to make a difference. We've had some really good co-ops on in the last season. Lando Lakes gave us an, a peek into what they had going on. And Tina May, the chief of staff there and chief sustainability officer, spoke really passionately, I think really compellingly about both the model, but also what you just said, that the need, uh, the imperative to support these communities. And, you know, they do it through things like the broadband program, for example. But there's so much importance to making sure that collectively these communities get the utmost support. Absolutely correct. A hundred percent, I would be in agreement with her. If we don't help these places, they're going to continue to atrophy. And we cannot have that. For the sake of those communities, for our own ecosystem and food system, We need them to be more robust. And when you pull into every one of these small towns and you see some boarded up centers of town, it's it's a sad thing to to witness, right? It's a very sad thing to witness. And I would share with the audience, get out there, go visit these places, go make a family trip out there. These farmers are very welcoming. They're a wonderful group. I have eight core advisors all over the US. and, And I will tell you, they've been unbelievably helpful to guiding myself and our company to what we need to do and where we need to construct products and and think about how they think about value. But they all tie it back to the local community. Even the biggest ones, they always take care of the local team. It's very interesting. If you're sitting around a table with those eight advisors, I bet you've had some really good bits of farm wisdom. Any stand out? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, Two or three of them really leap out at me. And one of them is, they said to me right when I took over, you have to do really three things, Ron. Focus, focus, and focus. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got it. 
And their wisdom comes out in the forms of, hey, look, at that sounds really great. You got to start with how much money the farmer makes. And remember, Ron, I only have 40 seasons. I only have 40 seasons. Don't forget that. That was where I first heard it was from that group. And um, they gave me a grading on my first time I presented our ideas on carbon. It didn't go well for me. I, I had to go back to <laughs> I had to go back to summer school for that one with them because uh, I didn't make it simple enough because we spent time on the science. So, and it was good because it taught us, hey, we got to just make this so simple and so direct to what we need to do. And that's what people want. That's what those farmers want. They're not looking for a bunch of corporate mumbo jumbo. They're looking for, hey, how does this help my farm? How does this help my family? How does this help these operations? And I want to help the planet. It all goes together. They know it. And a few of them were crazy enough to let me go harvest out in their cornfields and drive their John Deere tractors and other tractors. So uh, it's been a really great learning experience. Have you bought your own tractor yet? I have not. No, my wife. No. <laughs> I think my wife would kill me if uh, she saw a 60-foot boom across the back of a tractor going up here <laughs> across our little yard, you know? They're pretty expensive, by the way, too. <laughs> yeah, they're not things to mess around with. <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, as you look back over an entire career of really amazing, impressive achievements, I'm curious what, personally, what you want next. So, you know, it all ties back to your first question was, you know, how you're raised and what you want. And part of my own personal journey is, I am so focused on what I want to see happen for our planet and for this company and for the farmers and the agribusinesses. That's all that matters to me. And the way we were raised in my family, I'm one of five, and we never talk about legacy and anybody who thought they had an ego at the dinner table with five of us, no one got away with that for a nanosecond. You would be shot down in a second, if not uh, corrected by my father, that uh, the name of the back of that uh, jersey, if we were playing sports. Um, it wasn't your name. It belonged to someone else, you know, and, and you had to respect that at all times. That's the family's, not yours. And uh, I think about that, our company, we have a wonderful family. The employees here are unbelievable. They are mission aligned. And that was probably one of the biggest insights when I came here. Everyone is super committed to this journey, super committed. So I got to make sure that, that my legacy here is about leaving the company in the right spot. And all of them leading that company, and then I'm happy to I'm happy to to uh, to uh, let the company go to that next level and make sure that they get to that next level. I'm constantly challenging my own perspective when it comes to this idea of this notion of legacy, and I've, I've asked a lot of folks on like towards the end of this podcast, what do you want your legacy to be? And I just was reading a book last week, and it's Ray Dalio's Principles, which is an interesting read. He talks about if you look at what we are, one individual on this planet, amongst all the individuals on this planet, amongst all those who've ever been, like, we're relatively insignificant when we're it comes nothing. to, you know. Yeah. It's okay. We're nothing. You could say it. <laughs> and so it's, it's, I'm struggling with how to, how to think about that and how to inquire and kind of dig with people to understand how you want your impact to be perceived. But I, I love the idea of, you're leaving it to the company name. You're leaving it to the employees. You're leaving it to the broader community of customers and partners in the field, which I think is a, a fair way to thread that needle a little bit. It's also interesting, as someone who has had multiple chapters, all of which were, objectively speaking, incredibly successful, how have you kind of hit reset each time to reassess what success would be? How do you go from the pinnacle of 
something, IBM and, the, and you know, building the computer, modern computer era, to something new, venture capital, <laughs> building the internet era, like peak to peak to peak. How do you keep that going? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a really wonderful question. And that's one of the joys of the tech industry is it's constantly refreshing. And if you think you know it, you, you're dead. You're just dead. You're going to miss something. So you can never let your arrogance get out ahead of you because that's what will kill you. That will create the blinders. And that's when you'll miss the mark as part of it. And moving from each generation of change, as you pointed out, each one of those chapters, what's the most important thing is, did you build a successful company that then endures way past whatever your role was? Because the second you think you drive the company and you're the most important thing is the second the company begins to fail, right? It's really the people. That's what makes or breaks every company that's ever made it. Now, I can name wonderful leaders like Steve Jobs and these incredibly super creative, powerful people. And that's awesome. For me, it's about just keeping it to the team, keeping it quiet, keeping it humble. That's part of my DNA. The farmers and the employees, they're the ones who get the credit. They're the ones who drive everything. They're the ones who make it happen. I will say that at each peak, you're pretty green at that first peak. And uh, that's probably the highest chance for shaping yourself to be successful or fail. And that humility is probably one of the most important traits that I thank my parents for regularly because that's what shapes you. Now, I will say, you know, it wasn't like my dad wasn't pushing us hard. He pushed all five of us hard, but it was really to make sure that we're, that we, we stayed within our, ourselves, you know, after that, you're just a dash on a headstone. Let me ask one final question. As you think about leading the team or being a part of the ecosystem that you're part of and helping lead that ecosystem every day, whether it's industry trade publications or just the newspaper or the news, we get bleak headlines. We get headlines about the droughts, the you know floods, the geopolitical events, and climate change, and and how you know it's getting worse and not better. Or, and I think that can be disheartening. And and in some cases, I think folks struggle to see a path where they can make an impact, and it's demotivating, right, for a lot of people. And so I'm curious how you think about. The phrase I use is defeat defeatism. How you think about defeating defeatism within your team, within your ecosystem, um, to help folks know and understand, hey, a 1% improvement in our space right here is a global improvement that's meaningful. Like, how, how do you keep the hope alive? Well, first of all, we don't give badge access to defeatism, so we've cut their access off to the building. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think uh, for, for this team, I have never had a sense of defeatism. I will readily admit they, when I showed up, they had the energy to win. And what we had to do is really focus it on how we get ourselves there. And sure, we all have had dark days when we're trying to figure things out, but we never let defeatism in this building. I will tell you that on my watch, we'll never let it in here. We've climbed over a lot of hurdles, like all people who run startups and do exciting things. But we also, we received a lot of wisdom along the way here that this will always, you know, be a challenge, right? And people want to tell you why it can't work. And, and all that does is motivate people more. And our team and myself, we try to lead from out front by setting those examples. 
But what I've learned on this journey here in particular, and it magnified the next generation of leaders to me that we have here, is that motivation is purely intrinsic, right? It comes from having this incredibly deep responsibility to each other, to the planet, to obviously investors. That all comes from each one of these individuals here and how they were raised and the way they look at getting something done. And I couldn't be luckier to be a steward and trying to help guide some of these relationships on our journey and bring it to life. But I will tell you honestly, for all the ups and downs this company has, like every startup, they've never had that moment of defeat feeling in the air. We've definitely had moments where air has been let out of our balloon, but we we definitely yeah. <laughs> we definitely have not let that defeat in the building. And I can't personally ever operate that way. I'm a go forward person and you just keep moving forward. You learn from the past a lot, but man, you just keep going to the next hill and you just keep taking it. And this team has just been wonderful at driving that energy and we all get a lot of energy from each other. Thank you so much to Ron for joining me on today's episode. If you're interested in learning more about what Ron and Indigo Ag are up to, head over to indigoag.com. Have a good one. And as always, see you next week. Consensus and Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock with editing from the team at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including Kate Tucker, Creative Director, Greg Hurgel on Research, and Patrick Gallagher on Strategy. Consensus and Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus and Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.